Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Today's webinar is Penile Imperialism by Sheila Jeffries, discussed by Sheila Jeffries and Laura Lacona. And we will put information about how you can get this book, which is out this week, into the chat. So welcome, Sheila and Laura, and over to you. Thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Laura. Lovely to be here with you. Yeah, it's very exciting for me. Good morning, afternoon or evening, everybody. Thank you for being here with us. I assume everyone in the audience knows who Sheila Jeffries is, but allow me a brief introduction because I hope many more women will listen to her on WDI's YouTube channel or podcast later on. She is a radical feminist writer and activist, a director of Women's Declaration International, author of Gender Hurts, a feminist analysis of the politics of transgenderism, the single most important work about this men's rights movement and its harms to women and girls, published in 2014. She taught at the University of Melbourne from 1991 to 2015 Nowadays, she is very active in these radical feminist perspectives webinars. So thanks to Zoom and WDI, we don't have to envy her former students so much. Each time she speaks in a webinar, we get a glimpse of what must have been having her as a teacher. Her second to last book is her fascinating autobiography, Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life. And the most recent one, is the one we are presenting today. Here it is. Well, penal imperialism, female sex rights, and women's subordination. Both of them were published by Spinifex, an independent feminist press established by Susan Hawthorne and Renate Klein in Australia in 1991, and which has been producing controversial feminist books ever since. And of course, Sheila Jeffries won't shy away from controversy. She was accused of hate speech back in 2001 for affirming that transgenderism is socially constructed. As Janice Raymond writes in Double Think, and Sheila herself remembers in Trigger Warning, she became transactivists punching back. In 2014, after mentioning transgenderism and blackface might be comparable, Two male students complained, and she was then required to state she would never speak in such an offensive way again. Thankfully, she didn't comply, as anyone who knew her could have predicted. And here she is, falling back into the crime. This new book is guaranteed to offend all sorts of males, however they identify, because she uncovers the lengths they go to in order to defend their sex right, that is, the use of women and children for sexual pleasure and the treatment of them as objects for satisfaction, for their satisfaction. For someone who hasn't read any of Sheila Jeffries' books already, this is a great place to start because several issues she has discussed before converge in its pages. The reader will have a rich introduction to her thoughts about prostitution, pornography, and the global sex industry, male supremacy, male violence against women, the so-called sexual revolution, transgenderism, men's sexual fetishisms, the power dynamic of sex, the social construction of sexuality, the erotization of women's subordination, and understand how all these expressions of what she calls the male sex right form the basis of the political power under which all women live. This power is penal imperialism, a frightening and exploitative world which she defines as, quote, a reign of terror in which men exercise their sex right in ways which profoundly harm the human rights of women and girls to privacy and dignity, to freedom of movement and expression, to political representation, to opportunities, and even to their lives. This reign of terror is enforced by male violence. It is exemplified 
by the fact that women walking to work or home at night must be alert to the possibility that a man may abduct and murder them. Supported by an impressive bibliography, which includes some little known works with, with Sheila Jeffries, the historian, has unearthed, she considers roughly five decades since, since the 1970s. Even though in this period of time, there have been some visible improvements in the condition of women in Western societies, they still aren't safe from rape and murder in their homes or in the streets. Furthermore, the evidence shows that there has been a considerable regression. This worsening of the situation of women and girls and its causes and effects is a focus of, of the book. Following Kathleen Barry, Jeffries thinks that it is vital that women should face this reality. And she quotes, the only way we can come out of hiding, break through our paralyzing defenses is to know it all, the full extent of sexual violence and domination of women. And Jeffries certainly has taken on the task of knowing it all and presenting it to her readers. As Lear Keith says in her endorsement of the book, she has stared into the abyss and come back fighting. Part of her fight is telling other women the horrors she has seen and analyzing through a radical feminist lens and in a clear and very readable language as she always does, how male sexual behavior and sexual violence structure women's existence. In the first chapter, she starts by explaining the social construction of the sexuality of male domination and the important role sexologists in the 20th and 21st century have played in it, be it instructing women how to enjoy penis in vagina sex in the pages of women's magazines in the 1970s, or through modern sex therapy, which promotes the practice of BDSM and the use of pornography. The idea of sexuality being socially constructed might seem counterintuitive, but reading Jeffries's radical feminist analysis, backed up by a thorough histor historiographical research and lots of examples, some of them very laughable, makes it pretty clear. Then, in the second chapter, she writes about the sexual encounters that form everyday sex which are not called rape or sexual assault, but still are coerced and cause pain and humiliation to women and girls. Unwanted sex will continue to be a problem, says Jeffries, until the eroticizing of equality, which, which she has been advocating for several years, finally takes place. The worst thing is that very abusive sexual practices have been disseminated into everyday sex, with great help from the consent model, much criticized by Jeffries, because among other reasons, it ends defining as acceptable sex, quote, what a man does to a woman who may be entirely passive and wishing she was elsewhere. The third chapter is devoted to the industry of prostitution, including pornography and its several harms to women, subject matter, which our dear author has studied at great length and written about extensively in The Idea of Prostitution and The Industrial Vagina, The Political Economy of the Global Sex Trade. According to Jeffries, prostitution, or as she calls it, the warehousing of women for men's use, is a mechanism, quote, by which societies of male domination ensure the availability of women and girls to men for the expression of male sex right, end of quote. Based on the subordination of women and supplied by the trafficking of women, it is, quote, constructed politically from the male sex right and protected and promoted by the patriarchal states to serve their male citizens, end of quote. Our culture is increasingly shaped by prostitution and pornography and there is no way to fight violence against girls and women 
whilst tolerating these pervading manifestations of it. The fourth chapter examines how, quote, the exercise of the male sex right enforces the social control of women through sexual violence, end of quote, concentrating on sexual violence outside the home from sexual harassment to sex murder, which restrict women's lives and opportunities and limit, and limit several of their freedoms. For example, freedom of movement and freedom to take part in cultural activities. Sexual harassment makes women afraid and changes our behavior. The concept of social control used by radical feminists in the 1970s and 1980s is useful to understand how men use these manifestations of their sexual right to maintain their dominance and discipline women. The fifth chapter is about pedophilia and the campaign to decriminalize men's sexual use of children, which followed the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and the gay liberation movement. I won't say more about this because later I will ask Sheila to talk a bit about the movement that in the present is trying to normalize child sexual abuse and treat pedophilia as a sexual orientation with a, with a biological basis or even an identity. Chapter six deals with the paraphilias and kink, in particular sadomasochism and other sexual expressions which follow the script of male violence and which are increasingly common in ordinary sex and also other practices with less devastating effects, but, we, but which still require the use of women as sexual, as sexual servants. As the adult, the adult baby syndrome, or the colorful nappy fetishism, which poor Sheila had to research in depth. Remember, we have to know it all. Chapter seven studies the extraordinary trajectory of transvestism or men's cross-dressing behavior for sexual excitement, which went from sexual fetish to a human right which can, which can trump all of women's rights. Sheila explains how this extraordinary state of affairs came to happen and how a profitable transgender industry has emerged. The last chapter, transvestism and the erasure of women examines the way in which transvestites are shaping the entire world to the service of their sexual interests. By claiming their kink is something biological, they have infiltrated into policy making at local and, and national and even international levels. By bullying, intimidating and silencing women and through emotional blackmail, they are invading all women's spaces. Somehow, Sheila manages to close her detailed documentation and analysis of the atrocities men commit against women and girls with some optimism and inspiration, which she finds in the feminist resistance and what she sees as a strong new wave of international feminism. Sheila, it's great having you here and being able to ask you some questions about the book. Maybe I could start asking you why did you write it? Thanks very much, Laura. And it's lovely to be here with everybody. It, you, your introduction was absolutely terrific. Managing to get all of that and you know, explain it in such a short space is fantastic. Now, um, about why did I write the book? Well, I was intending to write the book for several years. But I had to do two others first, because normally I have so many books in my head and I have to sort of, they're in rank, ranked, um, rank order. But my first concern was to, for this book was to show where transgenderism came from. I had been aware for some time and explaining and writing that the transvestism of heterosexual men was the product of the sexual fetish of being excited by women's subordination. But this idea seemed hard to get across. Many feminists even seem to think that there were such things as true trans men who just genuinely had the essence of women within them, even though middle-aged heterosexual women didn't seem to have the essence of men within themselves at all. Um, but then uh, most women, it has to be said, don't know much about male sexuality and male sexual perversions. Um, so I needed to write a book which fitted transvestism 
into the history of male sexuality and male sexual perversions. I wrote to explain how what used to be called the perversions were liberated through the sexual revolution and formed into political movements to gain legal and social acceptance in the late 20th century. Uh, they, all, they all use the same methods, such as creating pressure groups, changing language, changing the sexological definition of their practice to destigmatize it, changing the law and policy and the way they were seen in the academy, criminology, for instance. Um, so they, the, the movements used all of these practices and so did the movement of transvestism. And of course they were involved, they had a public campaign for acceptance. Now I show how this was done for child sexual abuse with the paedophile liberation movement, with sadomasochism, with transvestism, and how it's now being done with nappy fetishism. There are also, it's also being done with other of men's perversions, which have harmful effects on women and girls, um, such as naturism. You know, uh, we may not want to see naked men in the supermarket, but there is a campaign to ensure that we do not have a right to object to that. Um, but I also, in the book, wanted to um, give a complete picture of how the lives of women and children were harmed by the exercise of male sexuality and how this created male power. It's not absolutely complete. There's a lot I had to leave out, of course. Um, but I, I was concerned generally at how aspects of male sexual violence are looked at separately and generally not from the point of view of how they create and empower male domination and keep all women down. And male sexuality has been seen as biological, not something that can really be altered. Women are expected to walk with their keys through their fingers, keep their curtains closed, change the way they live their lives and live in fear, all with the assumption that this is just nature, nothing can be done. There is generally no political analysis. I wanted to pull it all together and show how devastating male sexual violence is for all aspects of women's lives, at home, on the street, et cetera, et cetera, and that there is no escape. And indeed, reading this book, everything falls into place and one can see the whole terrifying picture. Sheila, I understand there were some difficulties in the publishing process and given that academia and cultural institutions are captured by the transgender rights movement, it is no surprise. But can you tell us what happened? Yes, well, for, for many years now, I've been writing for the academic press Routledge and they've been very happy with all my work. They were happy to publish Gender Hurts, even though there was a petition from transgender rights activists to try and stop them doing that. They ignored it. They thought it was a good book. They published it. Uh, but this book ran into some problems with Routledge. Um, it got reviewed by several um, uh, feminist reviewers. I made all of the changes that were required and the publisher required me to make. And then I expected the book to just go into publication, but that was not the case. They sent it for what they called a legal read. This is completely extraordinary. It's never happened to me before. I've never heard, heard of it happening to anybody. So obviously they've become terrified as many publishers have because this is happening all over now. They become terrified of the reaction from transgender activists to this book. So they sent it up to probably some young snotty nosed lawyer, uh, probably male, who wrote back saying about, you know, 50 things I had to do. I had to follow up this, follow up that. All ridiculous and things that it was pretty much impossible for me to do or certainly to accept that I should do. So I decided to withdraw from Routledge. It's a great shame because my very first book in 1985 came out from an offshoot of Routledge called Pandora Press. So it was a huge decision for me. But I decided to withdraw it because I wanted it to go to a press that actually liked it. And Spinifex Press, which is pretty much the only feminist press left standing in Australia, was happy, not only happy, but pleased to do the book and they like it. And being with a publisher who actually like what you're doing is extraordinary. And they've done a marvelous job, beautiful cover and so on. So I'm very, very pleased to be with Spinifex. But it does show the problem feminists have at the moment, getting anything critical done. And this is just in the last couple of years. Uh, it, it is terrible what happened to you. I can't imagine how uh, how a publisher who has already published you and has uh, 
several books of yours in their catalog treat you like that. It is amazing and so rude from them. But we should be grateful, yeah, for the existence of Spinif Express. I'm very, very glad they published it. And it is not only in paper format, but also in ebook, so women from all around the world can read it. When I read it, I had the feeling that the majority of your previous books, Gender Hurts, Unpacking Queer Politics, The Industrial Vagina, Anticlimax, The Lesbian Heresy, Beauty and Misogyny, converged on it. Yours is a very consistent and systematic work, as if from the start you had a detailed program. Of course, I can only see the final product of your intellectual work and not the process itself. But does this ring a bell, Sheila? Well, while you were carrying out your research and writing throughout more than 30 years, did you have a sense of where you wanted to arrive and what steps you needed to take? Because really, each of the mentioned books sort of works as a chapter of a single very long book whose table of contents was laid in advance. Yes, it's interesting that it should look like that, Laura. But of course, when I wrote my first book, I didn't know where I was headed. But each book was written with a sense of urgency, it has to be said. I knew exactly what I needed to write um, in, in terms of each one. But I couldn't, of course, see where my career as a writer would go. But it is true, of course, there are very common threads. Um, in the late 1970s, when I started the research for my very first book, Spinster and Her Enemies, I was invited I was involved in work against male violence. I was in the Leeds Rape Crisis Centre Collective, which was setting up the Rape Crisis Centre there. And my book, my first book, is about the feminist campaign against men's sexual violence, particularly sexual abuse of children, in the late 19th and early 20th century. So my book came out of finding there was a campaign like this that nobody knew about and the historians had covered over in the late 19th century. And that theme of um, male sexual violence, analyzing it, understanding where it come from and how we can fight it, has been absolutely consistent in my work all the way through, though I have um, covered some other topics as well. That's absolutely the case. Um, now, I'd always write about what I see as an emergency. Um, I wrote two books on prostitution because I saw that as urgent, and I still do, about transvestism because I saw that as a huge problem for children and women way before I published Gender Hurts in 2014. Yes, yes, I know. Unpacking Queer Politics is from 2003, and The Lesbian Heresy is from 1993. There you quote Gender Trouble by Judith Butler, published two years earlier. You must have been one of the very first readers to notice how anti-feminist her understanding of, of gender was. Even in Anticlimax, originally published in 1990, you have a whole section on transvestism, transsexualism, and gay liberation. Well, in the introduction to penal imperialism, you explain this concept as Quote, a reign of terror in which men exercise their sex rights in ways which harm several rights of women and girls. End of quote. It is enforced by male violence and women's behavior is constructed through terror. As Dee Graham in Loving to Survive suggests, uh, well, as she suggests, women's behavior is constructed through terror. Well, among these behaviors is the need not to recognize the terror which forms a survival strategy in itself. It might be possible to understand the apparent impossibility of refusal or refusal of so many women, the liberal feminists come to mind, to see the harms of transgenderism and their pandering to trans rights activists and their throwing women and girls under the bus. You, you can see this as a marked self-deception and a manifestation of that psychological necessity. The most obvious and common interpretation of this anti-woman conduct is feminine social socialization in general and the search for male approval, of course. But this insight fits in well with those other readings and gives a further complementary explanation. If this is true, that pandering to transgenderism is a survival strategy, what would account for the fact that seemingly right-wing women do see this particular manifestation of the terror, Sheila? 
Yes, that that's interesting because I have found uh, throughout my political career that there are other aspects of the terror that right wing women have been able to see, such as the problems of pornography and uh, prostitution. Although, of course, they have tended to have other uh, explanations. But I have also found through my career that they um, that right women, women, particularly Catholic women who've liked my work, pick up the ideas that I put out and they start to use feminist explanations. It's quite interesting the way the way that works. Um, I suspect that that's because there is more awareness uh, amongst these women of the importance of the female body and its boundaries. Um, and although, of course, that's not the case in relation to abortion and some other issues. On the left, on the other hand, there's a determination not to recognize the integrity of women's bodies or to respect them because women are there for sexual use as far as left-wing philosophy generally goes. So there's a support for prostitution, for pornography, for surrogacy. And on the left, there tends to be a separation of women from their bodies in search of a kind of abstract freedom. And speaking of bodies on the left tends to be seen as somehow reactionary. But of course, we have to speak about women's bodies. Uh, in terms of both left and right, there's this support for male rights over women. It's just in different ways. But only radical feminists, as I understand it, put this all together. There's a respect for women's bodies, women's boundaries, women's right to dignity and safety in sex and against prostitution, pornography, surrogacy, and in uh, the right to be lesbians and so on. Um, because of course, as radical feminists, we put women's personhood first in all things and fight the use of women's bodies in all of these ways. Imagine if women in positions of power understood radical feminism and put women and girls first, they really could do something to end this, this topic situation you describing penal imperialism, which as some people are saying in the chat, it's of course a great title as all of your titles in general. When in the first chapter you write about the virgin wives who after World War II showed a total lack of interest in penis in vagina penetration, by association of ideas, I remembered a type of protest some women engage in denying sex to their husbands or, of male, or male partners as a protest. It is called sex strike. I sense there's something deep, deeply problem, problematic about it, but I would love to listen to your opinion, if possible, Sheila. Yes, I think the most famous sex strike was in the play Lizzie Strata, but also I think in 1975, um, was it, uh, feminists in Iceland did a sex strike, which was you know quite uh, controversial at the time. I think there is something though problematic about the idea of the sex strike, because there is the implication, of course, that sex therefore is just work that women can go on strike against, um, and that sex is something that men have a right to as part of their sex strike. Um, and of course, we want to get rid of that idea because of course women should only engage in sexual activity they really want. And only when they would be really enthusiastic about it and where there's not something they would rather do. Um, as for very many women, there is something they would much rather do. And that's very hard to imagine and it doesn't fit in with the idea of a sex strike. In terms of the virgin wives, I don't think they were necessarily protesting. They simply didn't want to do PIV sex and they made that clear. And of course the sexual revolution was all about making sure that women did pretend that they really wanted to do it and have more enthusiasm and so on and so on because there was a great awareness amongst the sexologists that very many women actually didn't want to do it at all. And these virgin wives were actually refusing to be penetrated um, and there was uh, research on virgin wives through a case studies by a psychiatrist at the Tavistock Institute, that was 1962. And he explained that in each case, um, the, where the women were refusing to do PIV sex, refusing to be penetrated, the women were involved in, as it became, it was clear from what he was saying, political resistance. And it's extraordinary that really he made it clear that that was the case, but also that the women had to get penetrated because it was nothing to do with the women. It was about the assertion of male power and men were upset. I mean, the women just didn't want to do it. Um, and these days, I don't think that sexologists are quite as open about their motives in forcing PIV sex on women 
But they do have exactly the same concern, which is subordinating women and supporting men's power. It is true, their, their candor is striking. When you talk about sexologists from the 1940s and the 1950s, I am charmed by imagining you in full research mode, fishing around the library and finding books which nobody had written decades. Would you like to speak a little about your methodology and how does it feel finding those awful quotes from men who pressured women into granting sex to their husbands against their own desire? Yes, I absolutely love sex advice books, or at least old fashioned sex advice books. They're absolutely hilarious. And I first found this wonderful literature uh, when I was researching in what was then called the Fawcett Library in London. Um, and the treasures from the Fawcett Library are now in, are now part of the LSE, uh, London School of Economics Library. And they're a bit sort of, you know, all over the place. It's a great shame that the Fawcett Library is gone. I do remember when I was sitting in the Fawcett Library back in the late 1970s doing work for my first book and I found this stuff in the sexologists. I would uh, scream with laughter and there was a wonderful librarian there called David Duggan who would come rushing across. He was, you know, he was just you know, a star in the library. And he'd, I'd tell him what I'd found and he'd say how hilarious that was as well. And we'd both go, it's amazing. Now you can't do that in libraries anymore. That's, that's really not, not possible. Um, now, uh, the, the things that are in the sex advice literature and the sexological literature are absolutely extraordinary. Um, when I was looking at the stuff in the 1920s, the sexologists then were saying that between 40 and 100% of women might be frigid. You can see how big their job was because their job was to make sure these women got penetrated, had orgasms in sexual intercourse because that would subordinate them to men. Right? And so it's a huge task. If 100% of women are frigid, how are these men going to do this? I mean, it's a huge, huge task, but they set themselves to it with serious energy, and they've been doing it now for about 120 years. Um, but they were so clear in their writings, maybe because um, in those days, they thought only doctors would read the books. I mean, in fact, some of the books had the descriptions only in Latin to make sure that ordinary people couldn't read them. But now, of course, we can read them. Unfortunately, those, those uh, hilarious books are very difficult to find. Um, what I went on to doing was going, I would patrol secondhand bookstores and I would find the books there. And I'd go to the special shelves that had the sort of rude books on, the sex advice books. And they were just fantastic material. So I do advise anybody who wants a tremendous laugh. I actually used to do little, little readings for friends. I'd have friends round to dinner and then I'd read them bits from these books and we'd all fall about. But unfortunately, they were really, really serious in their uh, political intent. Um, but to give you a couple of gems from those books, there was one book from the early 1960s that was by a Japanese-American sexologist and he did a sex advice book. And the sex advice books were mostly directed at men. They didn't think women should read rude things like this. So that's why one of the reasons women have been unable to understand the politics of what's going on. Only the men are supposed to get the books. And the, this sexologist said that on the wedding night, women were expected to be virgins on the wedding night in those days. He said that um, the man should put the light off and make sure that as he undressed, his wife was unable to see the penis because if she saw the penis, she might run screaming from the room and it might be very, very difficult to get her back and be able to do anything at all. So there was a recognition that many women would find the penis horrible, horrifying, horrible, really horrible. Um, and there was also in the same book, um, there was, uh, he explained to men that they should make sure not to use their fingers uh, around women's sexual organs, because that might be so exciting for women that they would never want a penis in their body. So women should never be allowed to know the true pleasure um, that they could potentially achieve. They just needed to be rammed, right? Um, and there were, other uh, books by sexologists that were, were absolutely terrific. I mean, in one book, for instance, the sexologist is talking about how men would come to him because on, the men would come to the sexologist and say, do something about my wife. She won't let me do it and, and so on. And apparently there were two different case studies that this man had had where the man would be 
doing it to his wife, who I've had no interest at all. In one case, the woman was reading a novel. In another case, she was painting her toenails. I love that. I just love that. I mean, how extraordinary that she was able to keep absolutely still and paint her toenails whilst the man was doing that. I mean, it, it takes a concentration and a concentrated resistance. You can imagine she was just totally resistant. She might have hoped that at one point he would realize she absolutely didn't want to do this and just stop. But uh, of course he didn't. So the books are just absolutely wonderful in that way. Um, I also, of course, found in um, the secondhand bookstores or, or the books like um, Alex Comfort's The Joy of Sex. In fact, I think I had the, the a first copy of that because that was 1993. So by that time, I was buying those kinds of books. And Alex Comfort's The Joy of Sex was seen as the main text of the sexual revolution. He said sex was like... Um, uh, a, a menu like food, and these were all the different things on the menu that he had in his book. Uh, it was incredibly male supremacist, incredibly contemptuous of women. Women were told that they must dress like a, a, a um, in black lycra or black shiny stuff, like a, a cross between a snake or a seal. Women must accept being gagged. And apparently women pretended that they didn't really like this, but they could really get into it. They should accept being tied to the bedpost, you know, one arm each side and one leg each side, because men found this exciting. It was a, a really extraordinary book, and yet it's been seen as the very basis of sex education literature, as I, as I show in my book. He was said to be, you know, the master of how to do sex in the sexual revolution. What's extraordinary is that the sexual revolution, which was about getting women prepared to do all of these things for men's pleasure, has been seen as somehow really positive for women. And you know, there's not been a critique, really. Um, now, um, the, another one of the things that he said, that women should be prepared to accept because men really liked it, because it was, uh, there was a, um, uh, some horrific practices in there. One, one of them was called buttered bun. Buttered bun means that lots of men have already used the woman, so there's lots of semen in the vagina. So when the next man puts his penis in, it feels like a buttered bun, and he's got the excitement of being in the pen in the semen of other men. I mean, it seems to me clear that this is a homosexual act. It's men having sex with each other in a woman's vagina. All this was seen in a real absolutely what women should be doing. This is the sexual revolution par excellence. And the buttered bun is still going on. There's all various kinds of expression now for what men do. Men in football teams, for instance, will all go through the same woman so that they can actually put the penis into the other team members uh, and so on. So it's, 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 it's still a very significant thing. Anyway, enough about. I remember that book and its illustrations of, of, of hippie couples having sex. Well, the, and thank you for, for sharing these stories about when you found those quotes and those books in the library and the, the, the bookstores of used books. Um, the, the degree in which sexuality is shaped by culture proves, proves that it is socially constructed and therefore not a product of biology. But woman hatred is prevalent am amongst almost every culture. Having read Gerda Lerner, I believe there was a time when patriarchy didn't exist. Nevertheless, it is not easy to imagine a future without misogyny and the abolition of pornography won't arrive anytime soon. You say here in penal imperialism that feminist campaigns against pornography have been largely, largely unsuccessful and everybody can see that. But we must imagine that world if we want to create it. When, when you imagine it, Sheila, what comes to your mind? Yes, absolutely. We, we have to be able to imagine what we are creating. Now, I'm not at all sure, though, that there was a time when patriarchy didn't exist, but I think there was a time when it wasn't as vicious as it is now, for sure. Um, for instance, feminist anthropologists have been unable to find a society in which rape doesn't exist. And if rape does exist, then there is male domination. We have to try and imagine a society in which rape doesn't exist. Now, 
Um, a society without pornography, and of course, the society we imagine would not have pornography, would be, of course, be a society without the male sex right. And a future society in which the male sex right doesn't exist is one in which the concept of, of consent does not have to exist. Uh, I do write about the politics of, of the idea of consent in the book because it's very popular now. The idea is that girls in school, young women in university should be trained to make a good, clear no, to actually express that they do not consent, so, which actually puts the responsibility upon them for stopping men's sexual assault. The men just go ahead and do whatever they want and the woman can only say yes or no. Uh, now, the, the idea of consent, of course, is based upon the, the, the notion that men have the right to do sex to the body of another person who wants to be somewhere else and may deeply hate what is being done. Isn't that extraordinary? So it's nothing to do with uh, the pleasure of the person who's being done to, or even the fact that they want to be in the room. Consent means that a man can use, and this is the problem with a woman being completely unconscious, he will use her too, but the idea is that a woman should be conscious, um, <laughs> which is extraordinary. Uh, men do, of course, use dead bodies, of course, in necrophilia as well. Um, now, the, the, the idea of consent is the basis of prostitution and much, if not most, of what's understood to be everyday sex today. Um, the idea is... Um, the, the consent, the idea of consent is only necessary when a person is to be the object of a procedure that's potentially dangerous or such as an operation and certainly not about something that is necessarily pleasant. Now, the, the very idea of consent demonstrates clearly that men rule and that women are subordinate. Imagine this the other way around. If men were being trained in consent because women were the aggressors. Imagine that uh, men were scared that women might do something that was painful, humiliating and unpleasant to them. And they needed to be trained in how to say no forcefully. This makes it clear who rules. And the need for a notion of sex, um, it, it, we need a notion of sex that's not about making women into masturbation aids. Sex that's only about mutual pleasure and in which force or presumption cannot be imagined and in which the male initiative cannot be imagined, where women are not required to be constantly trying to say no. And of course, as I explained in the book, it's very difficult for women to say no. Nobody gives definite no's. If somebody's mother says, well, you come and see me next weekend and they don't want to, they say, no, I'm terribly sorry, I have to take the dog to the vet. They do not say, no, I don't want to come and see you, mum, because social norms do not allow definite no's. And certainly the relations of power between men and women do not allow definite no's because a woman could actually get beaten up. So the idea that women should be being, uh, being able to express a no is ridiculous. I mean, it's actually ridiculous, but nobody can criticize male sexuality and talk about stopping the male initiative, stopping the men demanding sex in the way that they do. Nobody can talk about that. You can't because it's very, very fundamental under male supremacy. So the uh, responsibility is all put on women. Women are the problem that they're not actually giving the right sort of no's. Now, I, I think it's useful to imagine in terms of how we might get to a, a future that might be better for women, um, that back in the 1970s, the women's liberation movement in the UK had seven demands, the things that we wanted. This is about sort of 1974 to 1977. And the one of the demands that we had was a self-defined sexuality for women. Imagine that right, back in 1977. The feminist movement had that as one of its demands. Now we have strangulation, anal porn, an absolute avalanche of pornography and sex that women really, really don't want. That's tremendously demeaning and degrading and painful. So, I mean, feminism has been entirely defeated in trying to reconstruct sexuality and make it something that was consistent with the possibility of women's pleasure, the possibility of women's freedom. So we've come a long way, baby, and it's not to anywhere good. And pedophilia is another horrifying manifestation of the male sex right and a central theme in penal imperialism. Do you want to share with the audience some of what you wrote about it? 
Yes. Now, interestingly, I wrote the chapter on paedophilia first because I was so horrified by what was going on, which seemed to me about to be the normalization of paedophilia. I know I'd written about it before, but I was, and we defeated it before in the 1970s. Feminists defeated the demand by male gay activists to remove the age of consent or lower it to four, so that some of them, the ones who are into paedophilia, would have access to children. And we defeated that. Um, and in fact, the paedophile information exchange was prosecuted. I describe all of this in the chapter in the early 1980s. So in theory, we had won that. But we had not won that. What has happened in the last um, decade or so is it's all come back. I mean, it, paedophilia was so acceptable on the left, as I explained in the chapter, that there was a the main Dutch paedophile organization, uh, that main Dutch homosexual rights organization, which still exists in the 1940s and 50s, had pictures of boy children on the cover of their magazine. Paedophilia and homosexuality were seen as, you know, the same thing pretty much for these Dutch gay rights campaigners, imagine that. In the 1970s in Britain, the National Council for Civil Liberties was you know, allowing paedophiles to be involved in their organization, speak at their conferences and so on. Extraordinary to imagine now, it's now called Liberty, that organization. Um, so, but we thought we defeated it. Last 10 years or so, clearly not. It's coming back in a new form. And the campaign that they're doing fits very much the campaign that the sadomasochists use, the, uh, the transvestite activists use, and so on. They've been massaging the public perception of who they are, getting the sexologists and the criminologists on side. Uh, we've now got pornography called a sexual orientation by many. It's seen as biological. And the paedophiles themselves say, um, child sex abusers, as they should be called, because of course, paedophilism is a, a euphemism. There is no way that they love children except as orifices. Um, but the way that they are writing about, write about themselves now is that there are the very good paedophiles. These are the non-contact paedophiles. There's loads of websites for them, and they are written about in serious academic literature. The non-contact paedophiles are those who really, really want to sexually use children. You could have one living next door to you who would really, really like to sexually use your son, but he will tell you uh, he's a non-contact paedophile. You have nothing to worry about. He is probably using a sex doll. There's um, a child sex doll. Um, there's a, a, an organization called Prost Asia, which is supposed to be against child prostitution in Asia, but of course is rather the reverse. Uh, anybody can look, look at the Prost Asia site and look at the discussions. And I looked at a discussion about child sex dolls in there where men were sort of selling their wares and talking about how you get the child sex dolls to use. And the problem that coming through customs, there could be a difficulty. You know? So the advice was you could send the genitals separately. Um, so they do know how to get around things. So these are the non-contact details. These are the good ones. Um, and being seen as having a sexual orientation. Uh, they have got a new name, my, minority attracted rather than paedophile. Um, and we've got criminologists talking about how the real problem with paedophilia is stigma. We mustn't have stigma against these men. They just have a sexual orientation. They just feel like they want to sexually abuse children, but they never will do so because they're very nice. Um, and we've got lots of women, unfortunately, criminologists writing about how we need to have a changed attitude towards them. And of course, the paedophiles themselves, the child sexual abusers themselves, are writing in academic um, magazines saying, you know, child marriage is perfectly fine and accepted. We need to accept the use of children. It's very good for children. Yes, we really have all of that happening in, in academic journals on sexuality and so on, and that's happening now. So that's why I wrote the, that chapter first. And in a way, it, it forms the template, at least for sexual perversions part of the book because it showed how the normalization of a perversion can take place and all of the mechanisms that are used to enable that to take place. Yes, about the normalization of pedophilia in the gay circles and left circles in the 70s, you, you one only has to remember this movie Death in Venice, which it's it's completely normal. A grown-up man in a relationship with a young boy of twelve or thirteen. It's horrible. Um, you write, Sheila, that men's hatred of women might be increasing in intensity. Won't it get won't it get more violent still 
before it starts changing, how will men react when they start losing their sex right? And what can be realistically done to make things less dangerous for women, to make them less, less dangerous to women? Well, we are already having to work out um, what to do about that, because men, as a result of pornography, which is, of course, horrendously violent, and all the websites on which men discuss terrible things that they want to do with women and egg each other on, um, avert woman hatred, apparently um, entitled woman hatred, is very, very much stronger. Um, and I think that that's clear. If we look at, for instance, um, the women's activism against the de demands by transvestites to uh, take over women's spaces and so on. The, the men are violent and aggressive in ways that was never the case before. You know, we used to have marches and things in, in London in the 80s and protests. Men never had any interest in this at all. I mean, no interest at all. Now they do. And so women are getting jostled and pushed and having their banners grabbed. There's huge amounts of rape and death threats online to any women who say any, any peep against what the men are doing. So there is a different level of violence and hatred, which I think we really have to talk about dealing with. It was a problem we never had before. And of course, women are starting to talk about it, gathering in greater numbers, how to look after themselves, because the police absolutely support the men. They never, ever, ever, ever support the women. And we're seeing this over and over again. So that's a glimpse of the future, really, which is that women are on their own. And in fact, in the UK, the police are often part of the problem, visiting women in their homes and saying that they've done hate speech if they've questioned men's uh, pretenses that they're women and so on. So the women, uh, the police are really, really a problem in this situation that we've got. Um, once upon a time, men just practiced their fetishes behind closed doors. They did in the bathroom or or whatever. Um, and now they're demanding to do it in public all over and women are in very serious trouble if they try to stop it. So any opposition enrages them. I, I cannot say exactly how we need to be organizing now, but we do need to be organizing in a way that is mindful that the situation has changed. Yeah, this is frightening. And I have been a witness of the rage, even though I don't have them in my life. Well, rereading your book, Sheila, I found myself wishing for male allies. And suddenly I became aware that this is akin to wanting to be with a husband who can, who can keep me safe from all the other men. Can separatism get us out of this reign of terror? I think, and it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that forms of separatism are absolutely vital. Separatism, a, a separate a movement, separate spaces, um, separate groups and so on were absolutely vital to the last wave of feminism. They're absolutely vital to this wave of feminism, but it's becoming more and more difficult for women even to meet or have a meeting or to have an event or to have anything without men present, to have a swim without men present and so on. So there's the, 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 there's a just ubiquitous men. They're absolutely everywhere, inserting them in all women's spaces and between women everywhere. So it's hard for us to think, to strategize, to create our culture, to create our networks. We are really policed now in a way that is much more difficult even than it was in the 1970s. Um, now I have to say in terms of male allies, I've been in this struggle 50 years um, and I think men have shown very little interest in supporting feminism. Um, the few men who have shown an interest, sometimes they found it interesting because they want to be in women's groups because there are interesting girlfriends there and so on. So there have been very few men who have really wanted to support feminism. I have to say, though, that back in the 1970s, there was something called Men Against Sexism Groups. In the days 50 years ago when I was heterosexual, I had a boyfriend who was in such a group. Men Against Sexism Groups, where they were supposed to talk about how to help the struggle for women's rights, but very quickly, of course, it became in a few years about the men, but it was supposed to be about supporting women. There's nothing like that now. Can you imagine, you know, having male friends who are in a Men Against Sexism group now? I mean, it's, it's impossible to imagine. So there, there are still a few men who are trying to support women, and I know a few of them. 
but the numbers are extremely few. So I wouldn't rely upon male allies getting us out of this one. I mean, male allies are not being enormously helpful on the issue of transgenderism, for instance. Yeah, yeah, it, it is clear. I can think of four or five of them as well. And uh, now, now these men go to new masculinities groups. That, that's the thing now. Well, in, in the conclusion, Sheila, aptly titled Feminist Resistance, you mention a new wave of the women's liberation movement that is underway. Previously, you had mentioned the radical feminists who were creating in the 1970s and till the early 1990s, you amongst them, of course, a feminist analysis of male violence. Who are the new radical feminist theorists? What are they writing about and where are they publishing? And are there new radical feminist ideas or are we still relying on the old ones? which, of course, are still totally relevant today. Yes, well, I don't think it's easy to find really significant books about um, the problems we face today. Often they tend to be about you know, um, just single issue problems and so on. There are some great books, uh, Gail Dines' book on pornography from 2010 is a, is a terrific book. But we're not in the situation we were in the 70s and 80s, where wonderful books by feminists are, are coming out every year and you're sitting there waiting for the next book to come out and rushing down to the bookshop in great excitement. That's not really happening now. And I don't know if we've got time to talk about why or all the reasons this is, is the case. It's not because all the ideas are there and everybody knows about them, because what I would like to call the feminist canon, the works of Adrian Ridge and Andrea Dworkin and so on, that they are not so much known about. And many, many of them are not in print. We don't know about them. So I don't think it's that women think they know it all and the ideas are all fixed and in everybody's minds. Uh, we absolutely need new books looking at the problem because the problems have in many ways changed. The varieties of men's violence, for instance, the varieties of what men are doing, which I'm trying to write about in this book, have changed. We do desperately need new books. And it's, we've got the situation where publishers, we've got hardly any feminist publishers. We've got no feminist bookstores. Publishers generally don't really want to publish these books. So we're in a difficult situation. Plus, a lot of these books came from women in universities like I was, who had the time and the space to write these books. But now it's very, very difficult for radical feminists to be in universities. It's always been hard. Now it's almost impossible because we actually have, you know, protests on campus. We have these male violence unleashed against women trying to be in these universities. So Getting the time and the space and, and someone to write these books is extremely difficult. I want to see them. You want to see them. We are waiting with bated breath. Yes, uh, uh, I see we have two minutes left. Uh, Joe, do you think we can take five more minutes of, or do we have to close now? There, this one last question I would love it, to ask. It, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Ah, okay, okay. Thank you very much. Well, well, Sheila, I hope that wave will grow and maybe we'll get to see the first race of its renaissance. And you recognize penal imperialism is might be a difficult book to read given, given the atrocities you expose and you are committed to the task of knowing it also, you, you tell it all. If it is difficult to read, I can't imagine how difficult to research and write it, it must have been. How did you cope? How did you manage to keep being so vital, kind, smiling, funny and optimistic, even when you were descending into the abyss for several hours a day? Well, it's difficult to answer this question and women do often ask it surprisingly enough. Um, I think I am lucky to have good mental health because it is needed to deal with this stuff. I didn't when I was young, but I do now and have since um, my late 20s, since I discovered feminism, in fact. Um, I have had good mental health and that's very lucky. I also feel very lucky to have this vocation um, because the passion that drives my work also helps my mental health. You know, it's very important to have a vocation. 
I also have a very supportive partner and it's it's hard to know how I would have carried on without Anne. We've been together for 35 years now. And so I haven't had to do this work on my own. She has always been there. Um, I do try to make women laugh. Laughter is terribly important to me. It's very important to my health. It's very important to our revolution. Um, much that men do is absolutely horrendous, but there's laughter to be found. I mean, the la laughter in my, you know, a, cl a classroom of 150 students, and I would put out these quotes from sexologists on the board and read them out, they would fall about laughing. I mean, that's really, really important to be able to show how not only disgusting and horrifying men are, but how hilarious they are too. Uh, but once there was a feminist, a powerful feminist movement to sustain me, and of course I drew much of my strength from that, and that doesn't really exist now. I've been fairly isolated in the early 2000s, and it's, very, it's harder to write when you don't know who you're writing from and who you're writing to. Um, it's different now because there's a rising radical feminist movement internationally, and I know who I'm writing to now. And I have the comfort of a feminist web around me, supporting me in this work. I am very, very honored to be part of that feminist web, Sheila. And I'm very happy that you aren't as isolated anymore. Your work has been very important and inspiring for all the women out there trying to resist transgenderism and misogyny in general. And many feminists, many young feminists in particular, see you as a lighthouse in the struggle. So thank you, thank you very much for that. And thank you to the audience. Uh, thank That's you for right. being here. And thank you, Joe and Marion. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you, Laura. <laughs>